You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. All right, if you've got your Bibles, go to John chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this morning. We started our series as we're going to walk through the gospel written by John. And so uh, we're going to pick up this morning in verse 19. As, as, as you're turning there, let me tell you about two things. In a couple of weeks, there is going to be um, a conference called Peace of Mind. It is a conference that's focused on um, mental health and issues of, of mental illness, and particularly as it intersects with the church. It's a great conference. It's about the sixth year that this conference has happened. It always has um, fantastic speakers. It is a, um, it's a tremendous blessing to our community. It was started by, and still very uh, much directed by Doug and Mo McSwain, who are a part of Bethel. Uh, they go to the downtown campus, but have been here since the very beginning. And so this was born out of... Um, how mental illness in their own family um, intersected uh, with the life of the church. And so, I encourage you, you'll receive the e-news from Bethel tomorrow, if you have not unsubscribed from that. Uh, There's still time to repent, okay? I'm just saying. Uh, That can be undone. But would love for you, that'll be in the info tomorrow and then go on our website, but would love for you uh, to check that out and then... um, let folks you know um, uh, know about it. So it's a great opportunity. The other thing is I want to encourage you, uh, again, uh, if you are not in a life group, um, I want you to be in a life group. If you do not have a group of people um, that you are doing life with, this Christian life with, um, you need that. In fact, I think it, some have been, has been said that if you don't have a small group of believers uh, that you're doing this Christian life with, um, you're really not a part of the church. Uh, that being a part of the church is not just coming on Sunday morning and listening to a sermon, um, but it is being a part of the life of the church where um, what God is doing in you and how God has gifted you is being poured out into the lives of others, and their lives are being poured out into you. That We find from 1 Peter that God has deposited His grace in each of us, and it is not a grace that is for us. It is a grace that is for each other. And so, I encourage you that maybe this is the morning you'd stop by the life group table out there and say, you know what, I want to be be a part of the church uh, by being a part of a life group. And so, we have worked very hard. We're um, uh, very much uh, been working to make life groups the very best they can be at Bethel. We've got several new groups that are beginning, and we've got a place for you. So, would love for you to, uh, to, to begin that journey uh, this morning. All right, so I'm going to pick up beginning in John chapter 1, verse 19. You, you'll probably hear me say a lot of times during this series, I wish I had four weeks to teach the, this passage, but for the sake of time and our expediency, and uh, we, we want to get through the gospel of John, but that is to say there is so much that can be said about so much of what John writes. I think last week I said he, he writes in really the simplest language, And as he does that, he communicates the most profound truths. And yet again, he's doing that as he begins in uh, verse 19 of John chapter 1. I'll start by telling you that when I was on Young Life staff um, many years ago, feels maybe even longer than it was, we used to do periodically this game called Bigger and Better, where we would, um, and sometimes you'd do it because uh, you'd ran out of all good club ideas, and you didn't know what to say to high school kids, so you wanted to do something fun. So they'd all show up, you'd break them up into teams, and you'd give each team a paper clip, and then you'd send them out into the night 
Of course, this was a different day. I don't know that we can do that anymore. But we'd send them out. They would go to different homes. The idea is they'd take the paperclip. They'd go to one home and say, hey, I, can I, we'd like to exchange this paperclip for something bigger and better. So the person at the door, um, you know, hopefully didn't call the cops, but would take the paperclip and exchange it for something bigger and better. And then you'd go to the next house and take that thing that you'd gotten you know, so you've gotten a paper clip, and then you got a toilet seat, all right? And then you take the toilet seat, and you know, I'm going to exchange this for something bigger and better. And then they, you know, you get a, like an old lawnmower out of the garage. It doesn't work. Well, that's bigger and better than that. So then, you, you know, you continue to go, and then there's a time limit. Everybody comes back and see who has received the biggest and best thing. There was one time, only time this ever happened, um, gave a group a paper clip, Five houses later, they came back with a convertible Chrysler Sebring. <laughs> like, please tell me you did not steal that car. And uh, turns out they didn't. A man actually had donated this car, um, had been looking for a place to give it away, ended up giving it away to Young Life to some high school kids who then went joyriding for the next 30 minutes until it was time to come back. <laughs> Bigger and better. Now, I think a lot of people are pursuing lives that are bigger and better. In fact, I would say most people are pursuing lives that are bigger and better. I want to take what I have and turn it over and exchange it for something bigger and better. I want, I want something greater than what it is that I have. And what is fascinating is, is that this passage is going to show us that there is only one way to ultimately get to the bigger and the better that we all feel that longing for, that, that greater than. And so the, the title of the, of the message, you could call it bigger and better, or you could call it greater than, either way. But I would say the first thing I want us to see is greater than being known for who you are, Bigger and better than being known for who you are is knowing Jesus for who he is. So look with me, beginning verse 19. It says this, and this is the testimony of John. This is speaking of John the Baptist. John the Apostle, now writing about John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. Who do you say, uh, what do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you one stands, uh, among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. It's the testimony of John. This is what the Apostle John writes. This word testimony is actually, uh, John's going to use this word uh, throughout the Gospels, particularly in the first several chapters. In fact, he uses it more than any other writer in the New Testament. It means to give a witness to. It means to, to, to tell about what it is that you have seen, what you have become convinced of. In fact, beginning, remember last week, we kind of skipped over, but in chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, it says there was a man from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to, had, with a testimony to, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, for the purpose. He came to bear witness for the purpose that all might believe through him. Well, you go a couple of chapters later and you see that Jesus 
is going to have an encounter with Nicodemus. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. And he comes at, at night, and Nicodemus, he, he comes, and he's bearing witness. Um, uh, uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus uh, that what he's bearing witness and what he's testifying to is, is ultimately, it's heavenly. But bearing witness to what we know and what we have seen and what we've experienced, Jesus is going to say, it leads us, this thing we've seen, this thing we know, this thing we've experienced, it actually leads us. We end up believing more than we can fully know, more than we can fully see, more than we can fully experience. The next chapter in chapter 4, what happens is Jesus is going to encounter a woman at the well, tells her the, her whole story, you know, it, it's, a, it's a great scene. And then it says she goes back to the town where she's from, and she gave a witness to who Jesus was. And the witness was, this is a man who told me everything about myself. And then the people that heard that, they believed her. And then what they did is they went and found Jesus, and then they believed Jesus, which is how it happens. The testimony of a believer draws someone to Jesus, to hear Jesus, to hear his testimony himself. That's the pattern. Then in John 5, he's going to make claims. Um, John the Baptist bore truth about him. The Jews refused to believe John. They refused to believe Jesus. And that was the pattern there. They refused to hear what John had to say. And so ultimately, they refused to hear what Jesus has to say. The very things he was doing was his testimony, namely healing, and the very words of God were his testimony. What God had spoken through Moses in the Old Testament, Jesus says, that, that's a testimony about me. So, so John's testimony here in verse 19, it's, it's, it's truth revealed about Jesus and what he's seen and what he's heard firsthand, and it's what he's learned from Scripture revealed by God. And the witnesses today are exactly the same. The witnesses of Jesus are believers. Believers who communicate what it is that they know, what it is that they've experienced. And then that, that comes to the second witness, which is Scripture, that, that every witness about Jesus points to the witness in Scripture. And then what we find in John 14 through 16 is that not only the witness of the believer and then the witness of Scripture, the Holy Spirit comes and is a witness himself. So the way of faith for an unbeliever oftentimes begins with the testimony of a believer who recounts their personal experience of being saved, finding John Fort needs to be fully known by Jesus, and then points to Scripture's testimony that Jesus is, is from God. He's the Son of God. He's, he's the, the Word of God. He's the one from above, and then that's picked up by the Spirit. And then faith culminates when the testimony of a believer and Scripture and the Spirit bring about believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, resulting in being born again, John will say, being born from above so that you might have eternal life in his name. See, as believers, look, I want you to hear this before we go any further. We're going to see a lot of people giving testimony about Jesus. We're going to see a lot of people telling somebody else about Jesus throughout John's gospel. And a lot of times we think, well, the, the work of evangelism, the work of testimony, I mean, that rests squarely on my shoulders. And, and, and we feel this incredible pressure. And yet, I want you to know, you are not the only testimony, although you're an important part of that testimony. It is telling those that you know about the Jesus that you know. And then inviting them, whether it's, hey, let's sit over coffee and let me show you what Scripture has to say about him as well. And trusting the Holy Spirit then steps in. And that faith is born in an unbeliever. They become a believer. It is not something you have done. 
but it gets to be a process that you're a part of. What's your testimony? What's, what would be written about your testimony? Well, notice what John says. They ask him, who are you? Who are you? You seem like a big deal, John. You're out here in the wilderness. You're out here on the other side of the Jordan. You're out here baptizing people. And listen, Jews don't get baptized. The only people that get baptized are people that are Gentiles that want to become Jews. And even in that, they baptize themselves. They go, they, they cleanse themselves. It is a, it's a cleansing from their old life so that they can step in and adopt the Jewish life. John, who do you think you are? And why are all of these people coming to you? That's what they want to know. It's the priests and the Levites. We find they've been sent by the Pharisees. Everybody wants to know, John, who are you? What are you saying? By what authority is this? And so he begins by saying, look, I just want you to know I'm not the Christ. It's not who I am. So what, are you Elijah? This is interesting. Notice, every response of John's gets shorter. I am not the Christ. I am not. No. It's interesting, this deal about Elijah, because if you were to go over to Matthew's gospel or Luke's gospel, what you would hear is you would hear Jesus say about John the Baptist, he is Elijah. Or his ministry is the ministry of Elijah. But John will say about himself, listen, it, others may make the connection of the Old Testament prophecy that, that John the Baptist, he's the forerunner. I mean, he's the one that's been prophesied in the power and the spirit of Elijah. But John doesn't view himself personally as anything other than one whose life is for the sole purpose of being a witness to Jesus. John's view of his own life is this. I am here to tell of the greatness of Jesus to see what he's done and who he is, and to tell everybody about it. My life is for the purpose of telling you to look at Jesus and believe that he's the Son of God. Become man. That's what my life's about. I mean, it would have been so tempting for John to say, well, you, I'll tell you exactly who I am. I'm the son of Zechariah the son of Elizabeth. You remember them? They were really old. They were like in their 80s and didn't have a child, and then God came. Very much like an Old Testament guy. You know? I'm, I'm, I'm a lot like Isaac. That's who I am. I'm a lot like a lot. You know, I'm a pretty big deal. I'm gathering crowds bigger than you guys have ever gathered. It, it would have been very easy for him to go, you know what? I need an Instagram. I need to start snapping pics of, of these crowds and the things I'm doing. I need to master the art of the humble brag on Twitter. I need to do that. You know, where I'm, where I'm talking about myself, but I'm doing it in a really self-deprecating way. He doesn't entertain any of those things. In fact, John's saying, listen, the trajectory of my life is this, to become less and less, more obscure, more unnoticeable for the sake of Jesus being more visible, more prominent, for the sake of Jesus being greater. Do you know why people were coming to John to be baptized out there on the other side of the Jordan? You know why they were coming there? Because they wanted something more. They wanted something better for their lives. They wanted what John was talking about, and that is that, listen, he's going to say about himself, I'm the, I'm the one, the voice crying in the wilderness. And, and what that meant is, listen, there is, there is one that is coming. There is one that is greater. There is new life that is on the horizon for God's people. They were coming out there to say, listen, I want that. I'm here. I, I'm going to give you this life, and I want to trade it for something bigger and better. What John is saying, look, that is not found in me. What you're really seeking, I'm only here to point to. I am only here as a foretaste. I, I am only here to prepare the way for the one whom you do trade your life into. Take your life, you give it to him, you know what you get back? 
something greater than you could have possibly imagined. I'm not the Christ, and I'm not the Elijah, and I'm not the prophet, the one the Old Testament has been looking for since, since Moses died. I'm not him. My ministry is a ministry of preparation. And that preparation, not just in John's context, but in the context of Isaiah, when Isaiah said it, was that the entire nation was in a spiritual wilderness. And every Israelite, every person needed to be ready spiritually for the coming of the Lord and for His glory. And so what you see beginning verse 24, here's the Pharisees, they ask him, why are you baptizing? John's going to appeal to the greatness of Jesus. And it's the reason we find for the interrogation. The Pharisees sent the priests and Levites, they want to know about this. And John's statement about his baptism is this. He's going to say, look, I I am not worthy. I I baptize with water, but among you, among you stands somebody. You, You don't even know him yet. He's going to tell us in a couple of verses, he's the one that's going to baptize by the Spirit. And John's statement of, I am not worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. Here's what that means. There was a a custom. You had teachers and you had pupils. And in the first century, the way of it is, is that you wanted to have a teacher. You wanted to be the pupil of somebody particularly if you were wanting a life that was bigger and better, you were wanting a life that was greater. And so what, so what the custom was is that you would, it, said, it would say this, this is an exact quote from ancient literature, all manner of service that a slave must render to his master, the pupil must render to his teacher. You, you're, you're giving your life to the teacher, you do everything, you know, you, you serve him with every ounce of your life. And then it said, except, except that of taking off his shoe. Students, they, they don't take off the shoes of their teachers. So, even pupils don't do that. I mean, that's the most degrading of all things. Here's what John's saying. I'm not just merely a student. I mean, my whole life is his. In fact, I would take off his shoes. I'd unstrap his sandals. I'd wash his feet. But I'm not even worthy to do that. I am nothing. He is everything. You know what happens to John the Baptist? He's the most free man in all the Gospels. He is not bound by trying to be somebody in life. He is a He has bound himself to, given himself to, the only somebody that matters. So later when he's imprisoned and he'll be tortured and he'll have his head chopped off, I must become less so he can become greater. Well, It's interesting, Uh, so in in verse 29, look at what it says the next day, when he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself didn't didn't know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. In verse 29, here's... The fascinating thing for you is you put the accounts together in the Gospels. The next day, that next day is 40 days since Jesus was baptized. 
Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. You find that in Matthew. And he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus comes out of the wilderness, and here he is. Well, what's been going on? Well, we know what was happening with Jesus. Here picks up the story. Jesus comes out of the wilderness, and John says, there he is. That's the one. Forty days ago, I baptized him. When I baptized him, the Spirit of God came upon him, and I knew. That's when I knew. This was the purpose of my ministry, was to point to him. So what's John saying when he says, behold the Lamb of God? Well, I think there's a couple of Old Testament images that immediately come to mind. You go to Abraham, Genesis chapter 22, and that's the passage where Abraham has his son, you know, his only son, the promised son from, from God. And now God says to him in Genesis 22, hey, I want you to take him up to Mount Moriah. I want you to sacrifice your son. I want you to build an altar. I want you to put him on the altar. And then I want you to slay your only son. As they're going up, um, Isaac is a man, or at least becoming a man, smart enough to know, hey, listen, we got the wood, and we got the fire, and we got you and me. We're missing something, Dad. We're, we're missing the sacrifice. Where's the lamb? Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering. But God didn't do it until Isaac's tied up and strapped on the altar and the knife is raised. And then God provides the ram in the thicket and they slay it. And, and you realize at that moment, it, it's, not just, it's not just the ram he provided, that it was pointing to a greater provision. You go to the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, the Israelites are getting ready to leave Egypt. God's going to bring the 10th plague onto the Egyptians. Tells Moses, hey, listen, here's how you're going to prepare for it. This last plague is coming. I'm going to take the firstborn son of everyone. And here's how you protect yourself. You find a lamb without blemish. You sacrifice the lamb. You put the blood on the doorpost, and you'll be safe from God's judgment. And, and the reason that the firstborn children in Israel, uh, of Israel in Egypt were saved wasn't because there was any inherent value in some very cute little animal that was slain and, and nothing magical about that lamb's blood. But it was because God knew he was putting forth his firstborn son to be slain. And you go, oh, I get it. The lamb in place of our firstborn was actually God's firstborn. Behold, the lamb takes away the sin of the world. And then in Isaiah 53, Isaiah prophesies but about this one, this suffering servant, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds were healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We turned, every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the sin of all of us. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. That's the one prophesied. Behold, the lamb of God. And it all comes together now. I get it. He's, he's the substitute. He's the one that's going to stand in our place. He's the one who has done everything that I need. He's the one who's going to pay everything that I owe. Everything. He's going to stand in my place. And not only that, he's going to do it voluntarily. And then there's this great scene at the in Revelation, when you get to the end, and John, who writes the, the Gospel of John, the apostle also writes the Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 5, there's this scene, and it's a scene where 
It's the beginning of the end. The, the end that God has said, listen, there is a day that's coming, that day. That day when history is, the book is closed on history, and history now becomes eternity. It's when, it, it, it's when God's judgment comes. It's when Christ comes back. It's, it's when all things then begin to be fulfilled. And this happens in Revelation chapter 5. And, and how it's going to happen is there's a, there's a scroll that comes out, and it has these seals on it. And inside the scroll, inside the scroll is the rest of the plan. The plan we've been waiting for. And John sees this scene, and bring out the scroll and everybody's looking around and they realize nobody can open the scroll and John begins to to wail I mean he begins to be so troubled and he thinks well here it is we're so close but how does the end come and then the angel says to John hey don't be worried there is one that can open the scroll you know who that is the people begin to sing Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He's the one. He's the one. He's greater than all. And His baptism in the Spirit is greater than baptism in the water. John bears witness to what he saw. John's Water baptism, it's just preparation. There's a greater baptism coming, and it's not moral outward purity. It's not just cleaning up your life on the outside. This will be true, transformative, inward cleansing from sin. Jesus' baptism will be by the Spirit. Jesus is the anointed one, and by the Spirit, his baptism will ultimately be a baptism into death and then his resurrection, and then we are, Romans 6 says, baptized into his death and raised with him. Well, there's one greater coming. And John is very clear. There is something greater than knowing who you are. It's knowing who Jesus is. That's what John's testifying to. John could have spent his life making a name for himself. But he realized his life was not what mattered. It was the life of Jesus that mattered. Well, look at the next bit here in verse um, 35. It says, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked as Jesus walked by, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Might even be Jesus said, what are you seeking in life? What what are you after here? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus. His name was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we've found the Messiah, which means the Christ, the anointed one. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, So you're Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. So the second thing is greater than knowing about Jesus is being with Jesus. John's disciples had certainly heard about Jesus. They had certainly heard about the nature of his ministry. John had been pointing to Jesus. He'd been telling them about the one who was to come. They knew about him, but now it was time to be with him. The two disciples, Andrew, and then the others, maybe very likely John, the gospel writer. What are you seeking Jesus says, where are you staying? They reply, 
Come and see. Jesus invites John and Andrew to be a part of his life. I'll tell you, we'd miss it as just a detail of an eyewitness account, which one is what helps make this so authentically true are the details. But did you notice where it says it was the tenth hour? It's memorable. I think think it's probably John the gospel writer. He's remembering that day. Not only remembering that day, he's remembering that hour when he not only just knew about Jesus, but was invited to be with Jesus. So I think a lot of people come to church, a lot of people grow up in the Bible Belt. A lot of people live in the day and age that we are, particularly where we live, and everybody seems to know about Jesus. And somehow, there seems to be that a contentment with that that says, that's all I really need. Look, I know about Jesus. I know those claims. I know how this whole Christianity thing works. I'm, I'm, I'm for that. There is a difference in knowing about Jesus and being with Jesus. You can know about him, not be with him. Come follow me. Come follow me. Your life now becomes mine. That's what Jesus is saying. That's why he's going to rename Peter. You're you're mine, Peter. Interesting. The first thing Andrew does is he goes to get his brother. This is always how it happens. You you hear about Jesus. You come find Jesus. You find yourself with Jesus. There is this compulsion that says, man, if I'm with Jesus, I want other people to be with Jesus. And man, I don't have to carry the whole weight. I don't have to fully convince them. All I say is, look, I've found him. Come and, and see Every time Andrew's mentioned in John's gospel, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. So greater than knowing about Jesus is being with Jesus. Look at this. Greater than being found by Jesus is finding Jesus. Let me see if I can make that clear. Greater than being found by Jesus is finding Jesus. Look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decides to go to Galilee And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. So there's some kind of a break between 43 and 44, and we don't know exactly what happened. But we know Philip goes and he follows him. He now is with Jesus. He has come to discover who Jesus is, believes him, so much so, it says now in 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. 45, Philip found Nathanael. Jesus finds Philip. Philip finds Nathanael and says to him, notice what he says to Nathanael. We found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Notice this. Jesus finds Philip. You know what he said to Nathanael? We found him. Isn't that great? Being found by Jesus, coming to follow Jesus, and then it dawning on you, wait a minute. I wasn't just found by Jesus. I have found him. I know who he is. It's one thing to be found by Jesus. Listen, if you're here, you're hearing the message of the gospel, you're, you're sitting in a church, you have heard the claims of Jesus. This is Jesus coming to find you. The truth of who Jesus is finding you. But even greater than that is you finding the one that came to seek and to save you. Come and see. Listen, this is how it happens. I'll tell you, if I had the time, I'd spend 20 more minutes and I would talk about this is the value of doing this Christian life, of living this Christian life with other believers, doing this in life groups, in small groups, where we come and see together and work this out, who Jesus is. 
We want something bigger and better in our lives. We feel this draw. We want something greater. Greater is to be found in Jesus. I think we work that out together. Here's the last one. Greater than seeing Jesus, being seen by Jesus is seeing Jesus. This is the most fascinating interchange. Look at what it says. So he goes to Nathaniel. Hey, we found him. And Nathaniel says to him, hey, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I think maybe that's what everybody used to say back then. I mean, Nazareth. I, I mean, I thought the Messiah was coming. I thought he was supposed to come from Bethlehem. You're saying he comes from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know how you are. You live in Tyler. Somebody says, oh, I'm, in, I, I'm from Longview. And you go, really? And, and I liked you so much. Nothing. I mean, Longview's awesome. That's not what I meant. Um, what does it mean? So he shows up, and I mean, it's an honest question. So Philip says to him, he doesn't try to answer him. He doesn't try to say, well, this theological thing, here's, you know, here's all these things. That, you know, he says, just come and see. I don't know. Let's go explore it together. It's not a bad answer. Nathanael uh, said to him, and then, and then in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there's no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you... You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered, Because I said I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. Greater than being seen by me is the things that you'll see, Nathaniel. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you'll see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's a fascinating interchange. We could spend lots of time talking about it. What is Nathaniel actually doing under the fig tree? Well, some believe it was a place to meditate. And what does it mean? Hey, I, I saw you and I knew you. And then, and then Nathaniel says, oh my gosh, you do know me. I mean, something is significantly happening there. It's more than just Jesus saying, I was, I was around earlier, I saw you under that picture. There's more at take, taking place than that. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's one of the marks of an eyewitness account. And I'll tell you this, it was something I think so private, something so significant, something so absolutely impossible that any human being could have known about Nathaniel. And he's astounded. This isn't just somebody who knows me somewhat. I mean, he knows me. He knows all about me. Knows my personality. Probably knows me better than I do. He knows me all the way. That's what's happening to Nathaniel. That's what he's realizing. And then when he tells him Nathaniel's going to see greater things, and he references this scene, this this ladder, and it goes all the way back to the account of Jacob. When Jacob falls asleep in a dream, in that dream he sees this ladder and angels are ascending and descending on the ladder. Some believe maybe Nathaniel was under the fig tree pondering that very story, and which is why Jesus says to him, you're a guy who has no deceit, because Jacob meant deceit. And what happened with Jacob's nothing short of miraculous up to that point in Genesis. You know, when a guy falls asleep, God, God puts on a show. And he did so with Jacob. In fact, Psalm 127, he blesses his beloved even when they sleep. Jacob wasn't pursuing God. God was pursuing Jacob. Jacob gets stripped of everything in that account, and then that's when God shows up. And Jacob's not as alone as he thought. And then he sees a ladder. 
Some think, well, that ladder means that, okay, Jacob, here's the ladder. Here's how you climb up to God. Here's how you, here's how you get up there. But that's not what it is at all. It's the beautiful truth about God pursuing him. It is a, it is a picture of pure grace. That's why here he speaks directly to Nathaniel, and he says, um, you're the true Israelite. I saw you. You haven't seen anything yet. I'm going to show you something beyond imagination. I'm actually the gate of heaven that Jacob saw. It wasn't just a dream. It was a, it was a promise. It's the way that that your world is connected to the real world. It's the way that this cosmic reality, this, this who, you know, who can ascend up to heaven to where God is? Who has clean hands and a pure heart to be able to do that? The psalmist says, nobody. How are we ever going to get there? And Jesus says, through me. It's not here I've come and try your best. I am the ladder. I came to bring you to God. I came all the way down. I lived the life you should have lived. I died the death you should have died. And you haven't seen anything yet. I'll close with this. Lee Strobel, uh, you've probably heard of him. He wrote uh, the book, uh, The Case for Christ, and his website, actually, if you go to Lee Strobel, the subtitle of his website, you know, leestrobel.com or whatever, Seeking Truth, Finding God, Telling Everyone. That's what the gospel writer's goal was. He was an award-winning legal journalist, had a, a law degree from, from uh, Harvard, was a devout atheist. And the story is that he um, was attempting to determine if there's credible, credible evidence that Jesus of Nazareth is really the Son of God. That's exactly what Nathaniel was looking for. And so it's this interview. He goes and he interviews everybody he can know. He wants to hear everybody's story. Is there a case for Christ? If, if, he, was, if he was tried in court, is there enough evidence to convict him of being the Son of God? He begins by saying his life was marked by a father who told him once, I don't have enough love for you to fill my little finger. And that said about Strobel's pursuit of something better. He thought it was going to be pleasure. In fact, that's what he said he pursued. He pursued maximum pleasure in every area of his life, and the mere concept of an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving creator was absurd. So they moved into a new house, and a new neighbor shows up and begins to make friends with his wife, who's named Leslie, and invites her to church over and over and over and over again until she finally says, okay, fine, I'll go to church with you. And she goes, and she can't believe what she's heard. She didn't believe yet, but she wanted to hear more. And so she kept going back. She ends up meeting Christ. She ends up telling her husband, you've got to come. You've, you won't believe who it is that I've found. Well, that begins his search. And he said, I became personally convinced that based on the historical evidence of the resurrection that this is actually true. But he said this, if I'd stopped asking questions, over there is where I would have remained. John sets us up at the very beginning of this gospel. Ask questions. You want to know if there's something bigger and better? You want to know if there's something greater? Come and see. Come and find out. Strobel tells this story. I'll end with this story, and I'll end with three statements he makes after it. And the story had a huge impact on him. He had interviewed a guy named um, uh, Charles Templeton. Templeton was famous because he began an evangelistic ministry at the same time Billy Graham did. They were great friends, and yet Templeton came to the, he, he, he became an agnostic. All that he preached and all that he believed, he turned his back on. 
Strobel interviews him, and he talks about it. He says he was talking about all of this, and then it said abruptly, Templeton cut short his thoughts. There was a brief pause, almost as if he was uncertain whether he should continue. And he says, uh, but no. And then slowly. He's the most speaking about Jesus. In, in my view, he, he's the most important human being who ever existed. Strobel says, that's when Templeton uttered words I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said in a broken voice, I miss him. Tears flooded his eyes. His head turned and looked downward. He raised his left hand to shield his face from me, and his shoulders were bobbing up and down as he wept. He says, to be honest, I didn't want to believe that Christianity, this is Strobel, could radically transform someone's character and values. It was much easier to raise doubts and manufacture outrageous objections than to consider the possibility that God could trigger a revolutionary turnaround in such a depraved and degenerate life. And then I realized that the truth is that God could have forgiven my past and given me assurance of heaven and yet kept me at arm's length and he could have made me a mere servant in his kingdom household and that would have been more than I merited. But his grace is far more outrageous than that. Here's what he brings you to. To define yourself as one who is radically loved by God. That's your true self. That's what you're searching for. And every other identity is an illusion. What's the bigger and better you're searching for? What are you willing to trade your life in for so that you can get something greater? John tells us it's Jesus. And the invitation, come and see. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I, I, I pray that you...